Hello, I'm Jason Elinoff, Assistant Clinical Investigator in the Critical Care Medicine Department at the NIH Clinical Center. Today I have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Arthur Sletsky about his upcoming lecture at this year's ATS International Conference. Dr. Sletsky's lecture is part of the ATS Discovery Series, celebrating 110 years of the American Thoracic Society. As many of you know, Dr. Sletsky is internationally known for his expertise and scientific contributions in the area of ventilator-induced lung injury. Dr. Sletsky is Professor of Medicine, Biomedical Engineering, and Surgery at the University of Toronto, and a scientist in the Keenan Research Center for Biomedical Science of St. Michael's Hospital. As well, he is the Keenan Chair in Medicine and Vice President of Research at St. Michael's Hospital. Dr. Slutsky's lecture on the opening day of this year's ATS International Conference is entitled Mechanical Ventilation from Vesalius to Ventilator-Induced Lung Injury. First, thank you, Dr. Slutsky, for joining me today. I'd like to begin by going back in time a bit to your 2004 Donald F. Egan Memorial Lecture. In your concluding remarks of that lecture, you postulated that perhaps 10 years from now, as we intubate patients, we'll be administering anti-fast or other anti-mediator therapy down the endotracheal tube to try and mitigate what's going to happen later on in terms of organ failures as a result of ventilator-induced biotrauma. So now in 2015, how much closer are we clinically to preventing and or treating biotrauma-related ventilator-induced lung injury? So thanks, Jason. It's a pleasure to uh, do this uh, podcast with you. So let me say that I think we're much closer than they were before. We're perhaps only nine years away now. Of, of course, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. It's always hard to make these predictions, and uh, I was hoping no one would pick me up on that uh, from something I wrote uh, 10 years ago. But it, it, is, it is quite difficult. Um, it, it shows a difficulty in sort of predicting what's going to happen, especially in terms of the molecular uh, approaches. I remember the discovery of the cystic fibrosis gene in 1989, and I was sure that within 10 or 15 years we'd be having uh, new exciting therapies that would just cure CF. And as we know, that, that hasn't happened. There's sort of exciting things happening now. Now, there are a number of reasons for this, I think. Um, one is that uh, ARDS is a difficult disease. We have difficulty with the diagnosis. There's a new Berlin definition but we really don't have it right yet. We clearly could use a biomarker uh, to help us make the diagnosis correctly. The animal models are helpful, but it's difficult to directly extrapolate from the animal models to the, to the humans. And similar to sepsis, there are multiple mediators, multiple targets, and we don't know as yet which are the most important. So when I said nine years is clearly tongue-in-cheek, but it, it will be a while. You know, we've made a little progress there, but I don't think we've made a huge progress in the, in the past 10 years uh, in this regard. Well, I, I appreciate you again going, uh, you know, out on a limb and, and making some predictions for the future. I, I agree with you that this is um, a complicated uh, disease uh, or syndrome to uh, to study. Um, but your work and, and the work of others has really provided some substantial evidence uh, about some of the mechanisms that are uh, ongoing uh, in ARDS and may be made worse um, by the ventilator that we use to support these patients. So I was uh, 
curious, in terms of uh, the influence that cytokine production and the impact it has on distant organs, such as the kidney or the GI tract, as you've alluded to in your previous work, um, you've suggested that anti-mediator therapy, anti -t such as anti-TNF-alpha therapy, for ventilator-induced lung injury, as opposed to uh, its counterpart, sepsis, uh, has the advantage because we know time zero. In other words, we can start therapy at the time or soon after the patient is intubated because that's when the lung injury begins. So I guess my question is, might this process of lung injury begin earlier, uh, for instance, even when our patients are still spontaneously breathing? Jason, that, that's a really good question. Uh, for sure, that this could be the case. Um, in fact, we use the term ventilator-induced lung injury but probably a better term is ventilation-induced lung injury because it's not just related to the ventilator. Certainly, you can get the injury that looks like ventilator-induced lung injury in spontaneously breathing subjects. And I think that there's a, there's a great study uh, about 25 years ago by Mascheroni and colleagues in which they infused sodium salicylate into the cisterna magna of sheep, and that increased the drive to breathe and the animals then had increased minute ventilation, increased tidal volumes for 24 hours, and essentially developed um, what we would now call ventilator-induced lung injury. They developed acute lung injury related to the fact that they were um, taking deep breaths and had increased minute ventilation. So I think the answer to your question is yes, spontaneous breathing can do exactly the same thing, and in fact, What's really important in ventilator-induced lung injury or ventilation-induced lung injury is um, end inspiratory lung stretch and de-recruitment of the lung. That end inspiratory lung stretch, it doesn't really matter whether that comes from a ventilator or whether it comes from spontaneous breathing. The transpulmonary pressure determines that stretch. Now, what may be a little different breathing spontaneously versus having the ventilator um, provide the breath is the distribution of the ventilation. So, there, you know, there are going to be some subtleties, I think, that are, that are different between the two. But absolutely, if you looked at a tracing of absolute lung volume over time, didn't know when, whether it was a ventilator doing it or someone spontaneously breathing, that should give you essentially the same pattern, should give you the same degree of injury. So, yes, that is a concern, a potential concern. And, and you're right, in terms of your original question, if someone is, um, is having very, you know, breathing deeply um, prior to, to intubation, yes, they could get the ventilation-induced lung injury that starts before the ventilator um, is initiated. Thank you, Art. That's... Uh... Uh, I think very instructive, uh, and, and that clarification in terms, at least, uh, pointing out uh, that this is ventilation-induced, uh, and, and the uh, the importance of end inspiratory lung stretch. Um, and I'll, I'll allude to this a little bit later when it comes to patients who are spontaneously breathing even on a ventilator. Um, uh, in its relation to neuromuscular blockade. But, but sticking with this topic, in terms of um, targeting a therapy or even defining the onset of injury, um, the, the fact that this can start in patients that are spontaneously breathing, 
How do you see that affecting sort of a biomarker discovery uh, 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 endeavor and or even, um, uh, you know, targeting therapy to these mediators? So I don't think it, it has a big implication in terms of um, mediator discovery. Um, one, if, if one could measure the ventilatory pattern, whether it be spontaneous or uh, on the ventilator, uh, one could then, the, the issues in terms of biomarkers and biotrauma would be the same. Um, the difficulty becomes in clinically in caring for these patients because I mean, I said glibly, if you could measure the, the, volume hist the volume history or the volume over time, uh, absolute lung volume over time, you'd have the same answer. But and it's not so easy to do in a spontaneously breathing subject. Actually, it's not so easy to do in a ventilated subject as well. It's easy to measure changes in volume, not so easy to measure absolute volume over time. But I, I don't think there's going to be a big difference in terms of biotrauma, whether it's uh, uh, patient breathing spontaneously or whether they're being ventilated uh, with a ventilator and, and even whether they're paralyzed or not. Uh, thank you for that. Um, in, in terms, uh, though, of uh, maybe I'm, I, I should reword, reword my question. In terms of time zero and defining time zero, um, will the specificity of um, a ventilation-related uh, biomarker or ventilation-induced injury-related biomarker, um, it, it, what would our approach be if uh, a patient comes in with pneumonia is not, not yet intubated um, in terms of studying these types of biomarkers, it seems we'd have to sort of broaden our horizons about inclusion of the patient population and that we wouldn't just limit ourselves to patients that end up intubated, but we would need to include um, patients who um, either, you know, are bridged with non-invasive ventilation or, or, or never need ventilatory assistance. Um, is that, am I on the right track with that? or? Or do you think that that would be um, not the right way to go in terms of um, uh, studying this population? So now I get your question, and I think you're right. It, it, it would be important. It would be. It actually fits in very nicely with the NIH PEDO grant, which is trying to get patients early, preventing the development of ARDS. So uh, I could see in a study like this, what you would do is get them early make a number of the measurements and follow them. Some will develop, end up being intubated, some won't. And that profile is what you'd look like. So yes, you would have to start early. You, you definitely could not wait until they're intubated if this, because, if this is a big issue, and it could be a, a big issue. It could be, you know, the, the drive to breathe in some patients is, is uh, very high, and they could be generating some of the uh, ventilation-induced lung injury prior to being um, intubated. And in fact, maybe if you think about multiple hit hypotheses, maybe that's actually what happens. Someone has some injury, and, and maybe if they have a high drive to breathe, they generate very large tidal volumes, and those are the patients that maybe go on to get ARDS. I hadn't seen that hypothesis presented, but you know, in this discussion, that certainly would be a reasonable, might be a reasonable hypothesis. 
you make you make some very interesting points and and actually uh sort of a a, a more clinically oriented question because this is something that I've wondered uh, at the bedside um and I'm curious to know uh your thoughts and you know sometimes we uh, do start patients um uh uh, on non-invasive ventilation or are thinking about because they have a high drive to breathe, their worker breathing is very high, and I think we're more in tune with the concern that they're going to tire out, that their PCO2 is going to climb and they're just not going to be able to maintain this drive to breathe. But do you ever find yourself or, or should a clinician ever think about the fact that allowing someone to do that um, actually is making uh, their condition worse and is another argument not only to, to prevent them from failing, uh, you know, hypercapic respiratory failure, but, but from further damaging uh, their lungs and possibly other end organs and therefore an argument to intubate these patients early and kind of decrease their drive to breathe um, to, to kind of slow that process or, or mitigate that process. So you're right, that's, that's certainly a possibility, and it's a very it's a very tough question, in fact, uh, to answer. Of course, we don't have the data to answer it, else it would be easier. But it's tough because all of medicine and, and uh, ventilator-induced lung injury fits into this, and it, just intubation and ventilation fits into this, is, is a set of trade-offs. You're trading off the harmful effects from the positive effects. So someone who's taking large breaths um, spontaneously or with non-invasive ventilation who has large, you know, large negative drops in pleural pressure who generate large tidal volumes could easily be causing injury to their lungs. The, pro the difficult part from a clinical perspective is um, you can stop that from happening by intubating the patients and giving them sedation and or paralysis, but you pay a big price. And which price is the bigger price to pay? I would say we don't know at the moment. So if someone is doing reasonably well uh, clinically while on non-invasive, while breathing spontaneously, I'd be very hesitant to, to intubate them and do all the things you have to do to, to decrease that ventilation, even though that might turn out to be in the long run the right thing to do. The other comparable problem is what if they're already intubated already and they're breathing spontaneously and they're taking a large breath. So at least they're intubated and you have to keep them intubated anyway. So a lot of the negative stuff is already there. Even that's a t difficult problem because you don't know whether giving sedation and all those other things are actually going to prolong their time on the ventilator and therefore allow them to get m more etrogenic disease uh, going forward. So that's, that, those are some of the toughest patients in a way to decide clinically what to do. Do you, do you sedate them, as I said? Of course you want to optimize the ventilation, or do you not? And that's, that's a tough, uh, tough thing to answer. We, we've done, we did some experiments with a, with a mode of ventilation called NAVA in, in animals, where we looked at, uh, with NAVA, the, the ventilation or the pressure delivered in direct proportion to the diaphragmatic EMG. So it's a way to improve synchrony. And what we found is that rabbits, when they were given acute lung injury while on NAVA, adopted a ventilation that was relatively small tidal volumes, less than 6 ml per kilo, in fact, and they seemed to have less injury than 
a, a group treated with the ARDS network uh, 6 ml per kilo. And, you know, we wondered whether it's a protective mechanism. You know, there's a reason I think that we take the patients who are, who've got bad lung injury, ARDS, have uh, shallow, deep, uh, shallow breathing, rapid breathing. And that's maybe because there are receptors in the lung that say, whoa, don't take a bigger breath because you're going to cause more injury. So in that regard, if the receptor system, if the integration of that uh, is adequate, I think that the patients who take, you know, large breaths, et cetera, probably may be fine. The trouble is we don't know whether, in fact, that system is adequate. Maybe because of the injury caused during ARDS, those receptors are in some way um, affected. I'm talking about neuroreceptors. They're affected, and in fact, now you have a pathologic response. So it's a long way to answer the question, and I guess I guess I could have said just I don't know, but uh, I think that that's those are the kind of things that people should think about when they're um, when they have a patient in front of them who's taking large deep breaths. No, I, I think that was a great answer, and I, I think it was very interesting the, the uh, points you bring up about. Um, uh, potentially protective mechanisms within the lung uh, to induce a sort of uh, adaptive breathing pattern. Um, and uh, it sounds like those are fruits for more research um, and uh, as it, you know, guides biomarker discovery or deeper phenotyping of our patients with uh, acute lung injury, that sort of uh, component of it uh, uh, is likely to be um, uh, interesting to, to look at. Um, but I think what you have pointed out about the, the case of a patient who's already intubated uh, and breathing, uh, taking deep breaths or either uh, desynchronous with the ventilator brings up um, uh, another question I had with regards to uh, the recent multicenter trial uh, in which uh, patients with uh, moderate to severe ARDS um, were randomized to either the use of uh, neuromuscular blockade for the first 48 hours of their disease or to uh, control, uh, and that they found some signal for uh, improved outcomes. Um, and might it be that, that neuromuscular blockade was, in fact, mitigating biotrauma, and that's a potential mechanism for its clinical efficacy? I, I think that's certainly a possibility. You know, in, in one way to look at this is there's two large... Um, hypotheses that are possible. One is, the first hypothesis is that it prevents uh, ventilator-induced lung injury. Perhaps by mitigating or minimizing or, or preventing patient ventilator asynchrony, which could, ventilate, could mitigate ventilator-induced lung injury. For example, it would prevent double triggering by the patient, hence prevent overdistension, hence prevent biotrauma, hence pre decrease mortality. You know, this is, this is certainly a possibility, and there's other types of asynchrony that would be prevented. This is a possibility because if you look at the, uh, the study, if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curve of mortality over time, it looks like the two groups, the control group and the neuromuscular blockade group, didn't separate for greater than about two weeks, which is actually pretty unusual. And one way to put it together, it doesn't mean it's the only way, would be that the hypothesis is that you have re these release of mediated biotrauma, 
and that leads to later organ dysfunction. So what you do in the first 48 hours um, actually has an impact later on. Now, admittedly, the first 48 hours and thinking about two weeks later, that's a big gap, to be quite honest. But certainly that could be one mechanism, one group of mechanisms related to decreasing ventilator induced lung injury. I wrote the editorial on this paper, and that's, that's what I think is the most likely mechanism. The other hypotheses would relate to um, does the neuromuscular blockade, blockade agent, cystatocurium, have some direct anti-inflammatory effect? Um, there's little published evidence on this. We have some unpublished data that suggests that might be the case. But I would say the weight of evidence today, and that may change certainly, would be that it's probably related to um, minimizing ventilator-induced lung injury by um, increasing patient ventilator synchrony, or essentially getting rid of asynchrony because the patients are paralyzed. And, Art, do you know, is there any data from the Papazian uh, study that we've been uh, alluding to that circulating mediators of biotrauma were impacted by the use of neuromuscular blockade? I don't, I don't, I, they, none of them, they weren't any presented in the original paper, in that paper that you quoted, and they may have collected samples, which, and I haven't seen the results of that, but this same group had, did a, uh, a small randomized control trial, 25 to 50 patients, um, a number of years earlier, in which they looked at, um, I think they looked at both BAL and blood uh, cytokines, and they found decreases in a uh, few of the cytokines, I think it was IL-6 and IL-8, and perhaps IL-1 beta. And that was a randomized controlled trial, so those differences in cytokine levels they found were in the uh, neuromuscular blockade group versus a control group. So in fact, in a small study, but some of the results, I'm pretty sure if I remember right, were, were statistically significant. So even in a small study, they did find decreases in the uh, NMB group. Well, I'd really like to you know, talk more. Unfortunately, our time is up, but uh, uh, Art, thank you so much for joining me uh, for today's podcast. Um, uh, our discussion today, uh, again, is part of the ATS Discovery Series, celebrating 110 years of the American Thoracic Society uh, and the major uh, scientific contributions of its members, uh, such as yourself. Uh, to our listeners, thank you for tuning in today, and I hope you'll make it a point to attend the Discovery Series lectures uh, this year in Denver. Uh, goodbye. <laughs>